All right, so we're um we're we're popping Screen Heat right. Miami. We got a great episode coming up. Kyle Patrick Alvarez, multi-talented director, film and television. And and most importantly, a Cuanito boy from Miami. That's right. The 305. 305 back in the house doing the thing. Into the wilderness of Los Angeles and carved a piece of the pie. Oh, he did. And speaking of the pie carvers, we should probably introduce ourselves since we always forget to do that. But uh, of course, uh, I'm JL Martinez, one half of Screen Heat Miami, along with... Kevin Sharpley. We're good to go. go. The better half. (laughs) But we can't go without our sponsors. Oh, yes. That's another big one. Of course, we have to thank Kajik Multimedia. Cinevision. The Miami Media and Film Market. And Chemical. Oh, yeah. Let's let's just jump right. There's so much going on, right, in the world. Yeah. Yeah. We got to figure this out. We got to figure this out. Hollywood is trying to figure out production. They're charging forward, according to the Hollywood Reporter. Charging forward. Yeah. That's just the headline. But when you get into the weeds of the article, you realize it's uh, they're they're kind of going on a, at a slower clip than than what you do, we would imagine. There are a lot of roadblocks, a lot of speed bumps. A lot of speed bumps. Yep. So their production surge, even though they're moving. And trying to push fast, there's been some issues. What do you think, JL? Well, there definitely has been issues. First of all, just speaking general health-wise, you know, we're here still kind of towards the end of July. Big surges in terms of COVID all over the country, particularly in some of the hot spots like L.A., like Georgia, like Florida. Uh, New York is doing better, I think, now. They started off as being the epicenter, but now they're – they seem to be on the mend, but a lot of these usual production hotspots still aren't very safe to film right now. And no. so in terms of domestic production, it still poses quite a challenge. And then the other interesting thing I believe the article pointed out is that even though the government has essentially given them permission and in some states considered them, quote, essential workers, it's really also up to the guilds and the unions, and, and they yeah. are still a bit more tentative. Yeah, I mean, that is part of being a guild, you know, of being a union is protecting your workers. So I think that that is their first order of business. And, you know, they've been on the sets. They've had to shut down quite a few. It is, it's difficult, as we spoke about last week, because, you know, especially when something is novel, you know, when you're just starting trying to figure out this labyrinth of production. You know, there's all these protocols. You need to have someone on set that addresses, you know, all of the layers of the protocols. And it adds not only, you know, the monetary, because you need a special insurance writer to start, but you need to adhere to all of the different standards that are are in place now. And you need someone on set that is in charge of that. So, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. Um, but they did, you know, start moving the needle. We'll see. 
you know? We'll see. Uh, you know, I know obviously Europe is a little farther along in the game and they're ramping up a lot quicker, is particularly parts of Eastern Europe. And Canada as well, I heard, is also ramping up. And both of those regions have essentially considered film production workers, even from the States. So if you're a normal tourist, as you know, right now, you're not allowed to travel to Europe or even to Canada. But film unless you're production in, people Unless you're in the cons- industry. Right. It's considered an essential worker. So you have to get tested. In some cases, you have to quarantine, but you still are allowed to go as an American filmmaker, producer, crew, actor, and work in these countries so long as you follow the rules. Yeah. So with that being said, um, UK, the UK has started production. I, I think we mentioned last time that they were about to start production. They have already started production. Yes. It's gone okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think Mission Impossible is ramping up, speaking of American productions going over there. And so it seems like this this whole situation is a Mission Impossible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mission Impossible did start up, but from what I understand and from my reports, they found that there were four people who had coronavirus. And oh, really? On, the, off on the that time. crew in particular? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I, I didn't hear that. Huh? Yeah. But I mean, you know, that's a good and a bad thing. The the bad thing is, you know, four people uh, had coronavirus. So that's four bodies for uh, job responsibilities less. Um, the other thing is that, you know, they are connecting in terms of, you know, the protocol that's in place. So they're able to, you know, kind of root out, uh, um, you know, the, the, the people that, you know, may have uh, uh, impacted that particular production. So that's a big part of moving forward with production, period. When you're able to, um, you know, find before things move forward, uh, you know, people that could have potentially uh, put the set at risk. So, you know, there's two ways to see it, but they are moving forward with production. They're moving forward with production and they've been producing, as we mentioned before in New Zealand and Australia, uh, Australia itself. I mean, New Zealand itself has had, um, issues kind of in the, in the greater sphere in terms of coronavirus, but you know, their issues pale in comparison to, some of the other hot spots around the world. So, you know, production is, is moving. So that right, is connected to the next topic item that we have in the queue, which is running out of content. Yeah, we are. We're running out speaking one. And that one is really happening. I mean, we talked about right. that a couple of months ago and the possibility, but yeah, that looks are, like it's prescient. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And especially, you know, because of the compounding issue of, of folks being home so much now, not a lot of entertainment options out there, all theaters still closed in the States, people binging not only shows, but we're jokingly saying entire platforms at a time. And so it's interesting to see how some of these particularly streamers are responding in trying to get new content out there, perhaps spreading out their lineup a little thinner than they would like. <laughs> but one one major one, the major one, Netflix 
not, doesn't seem too worried about it. They think no. they, they've got a pretty robust library, according to Ted Sarandos, the chief content officer, now co-CEO of the company, saying they've got plenty of content to go, not only the rest of this year, but even partly into next year. Yeah, well into 2021. So it's really looking like that big uh, debt, bit of, big amount of debt that they took on to buy content is is feeling prophetic because they took on... I think, you know, another $2 billion of debt uh, earlier in the year to do a big content purchase. And they, you know, they purchased a lot of this content um, that is, it looks like it's going to serve them very well. And their numbers have really gone through the roof, even with their original content. I've seen a couple of their, um, their 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 original films uh the one with Charlize Theron which looks like it's going to be a series of films and and it was you know set up for it to have sequels I I really enjoyed it you know um they had another one with uh uh Hemsworth uh, Liam Hemsworth one of the Hemsworths I mean Chris Hemsworth. The Hemsworths, ah. I don't know. It's hard to keep up with these guys. It's Liam. It's Chris. We're together. We're separate. Who are we? I don't, I don't know. know. And there's more of them, you know, in the woodwork. <laughs> there's so many Hemsworths. Yeah, but the, uh, with, with Chris Hemsworth, and I enjoyed that one. So for me, their originals really are, you know, picking up steam. And, uh, you know, I think Netflix, they really, in terms of, any of these, you know, streamers in terms of cable, in terms of television, once again, Netflix is forging forward and uh, really looking future thinking, you know? Oh, yeah. So. It's like uh, our fellow Mr. 305 would say, scared money don't make money. So <laughs> That's they right. Are. They took on that debt. <laughs> no fear taking on that debt. And uh, hey. it looks like it's, it's coming to pass that that was, uh, you know, very... Uh, very future thinking on their part. And absolutely they acquired in terms of future thinking. And we've spoke about this. He was on our podcast, Kareem Tapsh, the filmmaker of Mucho Mucho Amor. Netflix bought that documentary before its debut at Sundance. And that is looking like it is giving bounty back in a fruitful cornucopia of ways because it's an international sensation. Oh yeah, and and we figured it was going to be strong, obviously within the let's call it the global Latino community, let alone the U.S. Latino community who really grew up, uh, myself included, our parents and grandparents watching mucho amor, uh, not mucho amor, <laughs> watching <laughs> watching the inspiration Walter Mercado for so many years. He he was like a staple of every U.S. Latino household. And so you figure that they would do strong numbers there, but it's really crossed over to the general market. Like people are just fascinated by this person. Yeah, well, it's well done, you know, a story well done. So, you know, it becomes less about uh, the culture and heritage that, and I watch, I would watch uh, Walter Mercado and my, uh, Mercado and, um, you know, my grasp on Spanish is uh, tenuous at best. And I would watch Enigmatic Personality. I would watch, you know, whenever I could. And I, I'm, I'm not, you know, big on astrology either. 
but you know, such an enigmatic personality. So the story became, it it is not even became, the story is more about, um, you know, what, what he was all about and what drew people to him. And right. that's I think, a universal yeah, Particularly story. during these times, so obviously you're talking about someone that expressed a lot of positivity, a lot of love, a lot of empathy. And those are the types of messaging that, that I think people need to hear, right? particularly right now. Yeah. Yeah. So again, prophetic on Netflix, uh, y- you know, looking ahead and, you know, connecting on properties that are relevant and timely. And in our industry, that has to be done you know, so many, many, uh, you know, years, months ahead of time because production has to happen, you know, before the trend happens. Oftentimes, you know, you're too late if you're trying to produce something because it's already on trend. So either Mm -hmm. you're producing something that's going to connect on a trend that's coming in the future, or you're creating the trends. And Netflix is doing both. And that's why they're one of the highest valuated companies in the world. So scared money, don't make money. Hashtag Netflix. (laughs) Scared money, don't make money. But we do have something that is on the money. This interview with Kyle Patrick Alvarez, that's on the money for sure. And we definitely need to preface our viewers by saying this will be a two-parter, another epic interview. Another one. Another, Another one. one. <laughs> Dale. Us can talk, bro. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but yes, sir- this was so much great stuff. Yeah. Um, Kyle Patrick Alvarez, uh, feature films, the Stanford prison. Uh, yeah. Th- that film is just, you know, phenomenal. And also, you know, it was a precursor to some of the younger stars, um, big careers, I would say Ezra Miller before he did Flash and his turn in this movie was just phenomenal. Um, Homecoming, which is on Amazon mm-hmm. Prime. First season was Julia Roberts, uh, directed by uh, Ismail, um, Sam Im- Is- Ismail, who's another one of my favorite directors. And yeah, producers and writers of, of uh, Mr. Robot. Well, sorry, Mr. Robot. Bad Robot yeah. is a production company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, of Mr. Robot. And he did the first season, Kyle Patrick Alvarez. Second season, um, you know, and he, he speaks on Janelle Monet, who is uh, the star of the second season, one of the stars of the second season. And then uh, 13 Reasons Why. Um, that one kind of slipped through the cracks on me in terms of um, his, his directing, you know, some, some of those episodes, but that was a lightning rod, uh, 13 reasons why. So, and, uh, and other things. So he's had a phenomenal, a, a tremendous career, but also a very eclectic career. So you all are going to yes. get, and that's why we had to divide this into two parts, you know? Oh so, yeah. There's, there's a lot to digest out of this interview, but it's all, Really, really good stuff. So I say we just jump right into it because I, I can't wait to, to, to just reimmerse myself in the world of Kyle Patrick Alvarez. There you go. Here we go. And um, execution wise and sort of get into things with some more scope. And then that led into getting to do TV for the last, you know, handful of years. While I'm still, of course, trying to get more movies going, you know, 
every year I've tried to get a few movies going. It's just an impossible business sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're going to talk about that. Um, and, and also, I'm, I'm going to come back and revisit what we just talked about right here. But um, specifically, uh, filmmakers. Um, are there filmmakers specifically that you... Oh, yeah. Especially if we're talking about Homecoming, it's like, obviously, it's Brian De Palma. Ah. Uh, 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 or Pacula. I always, I always mess up the pronunciation of his name, but definitely like Pacula would, Pacula would probably be the number one influence on, uh, on Stanford, like above all else, like him and Gordon Willis's work Um, to a degree homecoming. I mean, some of that was like established already with season one, but those two are, uh, are definitely, um, were definitely like the stuff I was absorbing the most while watching that. And just looking at like lens choices and how you, how you can use zoom lenses in a way that doesn't feel silly, you know, like a zoom lens went out of fashion and now I'm just sort of like, uh, everything, uh, you know, now I hope, hopefully that language can be sort of like brought back in again without feeling too throwback, you know? (laughs) Well, you know, I think that, well, okay. I'm done. I mean, you know, we can go ahead and get say, started. Have, have we officially started the interview? Is this who, uh... Yeah, I already started. I did. I already started. There you so. go. We'll, we'll start in the middle, and then we'll flash back to the beginning of the interview. So we'll just kind of edit out a sequence. Yeah, because we already have magic going, so um, I yes, love that. I love it. Well, you know, most of our podcasts do start kind of conversationally like this, and then we just kind of flow into a con- an, an ongoing conversation about, you know, sort of the, the language of film and the visual of films. But obviously, I, I want to take the opportunity uh, – Kyle, to welcome you to the show, to Screen Heat Miami. It's really a pleasure to be connecting with you today. Yeah, and um, Kyle, just let me make introductions. JL, is a, he's a peer of mine. We work together on the Miami Media and Film Market, which it would be great to bring you back here to Miami on that. I, I briefly discussed it with you, you know, when I talked to you in person, but, you know, it was just so quick, you know, but uh, we bring in some of the biggest writers, producers, directors, commissioners, you know, what have you from around the world. Um, for for uh, three days at the Biltmore Hotel for a symposium for three days at the Biltmore Hotel, it's amazing. Yeah. So, please. look, I learned how to uh, I learned how to swim in the Biltmore Hotel pool. So I will. Oh, 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 oh. How decadent! <laughs> a little, but for a couple of years, uh, far down the street from it, and they used to offer like families could use the maybe still, but could use the pool kind of as like a local pool for like a monthly subscription or something. Oh, I got it. Yeah, so oh, wow. used to be our, our family thing. So the, between there and the Miami, the UM pool, that's where I, <laughs> those are like my childhood memories, you know. Wow. Yeah, so I so, looking for a reason to be, to be able to go back to Miami. Um, all my family's, you know, my family's there, but I haven't been back there since I was there for the film festival. Of, wow. Uh, so that's like the, three years ago, right? Three years ago. So it's yeah. been a bit. I've been, I've been wanting, my plan was to try to find a way to go back around this time after, cause you know, I finished homecoming. I'm sure we'll get into this, but I finished homecoming the day lockdown started in LA, but I had, my intention was like, Oh, after a year of straight work on that, I was like, you know, I'm going to finally go to Miami. My boyfriend and I are going to do a trip there. He's never been like, just try to like actually go and spend a week there. See my grandmother. Um, who's well into her nineties now. Um, so, you know, all of, all of those things, but, um, I, uh, Obviously, lockdown happened and the world is standing still. But yeah, I would, I, yeah, I would love to, to of course, always oh, 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 be in touch and consider that and be able to be contribute I, to, to or help any way I can. Yeah, bring you, put you up in the Biltmore. You know, like uh, what else could you ask for? But um, yeah, yeah. so Jail is the co-founder of that, and you know has done such a remarkable job um, in helping to um, 
frame that and and really guide it to uh, to to what it is now. It's like an one of the most incredible events here in Miami uh, of the year. But he's also a producer. Um, he just finished a, fe a feature, a indie feature that oh, right. uh, debuted at the Miami Film Festival. It was one of the you know only you know it, the Miami Film Festival only went halfway through. So they're saying you know it's the last film festival before the pandemic. Halfway through the festival, it is you know they had to shut it down, and that was it. And then there were no more film festivals after that. So, wow. but his film showed. So <laughs> yeah, luckily we uh, we were we were the opening weekend. So right. <laughs> yeah, that was a lot of wrangling, you know, that that you did to make that happen. So good thing you did. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine. I've been thinking about. I have a lot of friends who you know had to stop things midway, you know, mid shoot, or in that case, like a film festival. It's sort of. Um, you know, the business is talking so much. When do we go back? How do we go back? Or what new projects, et cetera? And I'm sort of like, oh, there's a whole world of things that we're halfway through that might never even get to exist. You know, I mean, yeah. I, um, especially the first two movies, uh, or actually all, all three movies I've made, if we even had a hiccup for, if we even lost an hour of time, we would have been dead. You know, like we just every penny needed was worth it. You know, it was needed. And everything was made just by the skin of its teeth. You throw in, you know, putting a eight month, you know, potentially longer hiatus into there. I just think there's, there's going to be a whole host of, of movies and TV shows and such that um, never, never only exist in a half shot form, you know, and that, that's yeah. more, I remind myself that when I'm like, Oh, I might not be on set again for, you know, potentially how years or whatever. I remind myself it could be way, way worse. And I feel lucky we got to, I got to finish the thing I was in, I was working on and, uh, and, you know, and, and have time for reflection and writing and all of that. So um, right, absolutely. we're going to officially jump into this. Um, this is Kevin Sharpley uh, with my co-host, JL, JL Martinez. Martinez. Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> and uh, we're here to interview uh, one of my favorite storytellers. And this, for me, this is uh, a, a real treat. A storyteller, a filmmaker, um, and a content creator who does television equally as, uh, as uh, magnificently as he does film. And he's from Miami, uh, Kyle Patrick Alvarez. So welcome, go. Kyle, to Screen Heat Miami. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm glad, very glad to be here and, uh, and get to uh, hopefully talk a little bit about Miami too, which I never Absolutely. got to. <laughs> yeah, I know it. it, it's selling, but the fact that we, that's why I told uh, Kevin when we started the podcast, we have to throw Miami somewhere in the title uh, because, you know, it's just, you know, it's interesting that when you talk to people in the industry and you do bring up Miami, they're like, oh, there's instant memories that usually pops into people's heads, uh, even the ones that aren't from here, but you are from here. So that's extra exciting. Like an interesting history of like Miami was, you know, I mean, this is a slight exaggeration of the history, but was basically you know, one hurricane got in the way of it becoming basically the central hub of the entire entertainment industry. You know, it was like when, when it was, yeah, I think it's the, it was the early twenties when things, people were starting to look at, or maybe even earlier, like, oh, where's the entertainment industry going to be based out of? And there was a big, big, I don't know if it was a hurricane or a storm that did a bunch of damage to Miami and they got cold, you know, whoever was looking at trying to move, basically move out of the New York scene, got cold feet and went to Los Angeles <laughs> instead. You yeah. know, so you look yeah, at the potential 
had and how close Miami's gotten with a few, obviously with Michael Bay going there and Michael Mann there, like making big stuff. It's like, it's a city that's proven it can carry big productions and probably for political machinations and financial reasons and such has never, never fully crossed into being like a as strong. And Orlando has been complicated in the same way. He's like always flirting with just almost becoming like a, like a, a, cent- a place where you would go make a movie not just because it takes place in Miami or somewhere that Miami kind of looks like. You know? <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we were actually there at the precipice before. It is legislative because, you know, everything ebbs and flows with these incentives. So um, about eight years ago, you know, our incentive or seven years ago, eight, seven year, eight years ago, um, you know, they canceled the incentive program. And so we were doing quite well. You know, we had five high impact television shows shooting at the same time and building, you know. And of course, you know, you mentioned Michael Bay has a place here. So I'm sure that he would, you know, love to shoot even more here. But and, yeah. and, and his career also kind of, you know, was a springboard, you know, with bad boys, you know, you know, kind of springboarded from Miami. But uh, without these, you know, a comprehensive incentive program, you know, that then also, you know, that that machine creates you know more of the infrastructure my company, we just um, established a presence in Georgia. And, oh. you know, Georgia has this soup of infrastructure and, you know, the incentive programs that makes it, you know, or that has made it ripe, you know, for, for uh, the type of production that Miami was primed for. But when they pulled back, you know, from that incentive program, you know, that kind of was, uh, I don't want to say it was it because, you know, well, it'll be back, you know, but it, you know. It's, it's a, the incentive programs are so complicated and obviously that we could probably talk about this for the length of the podcast, so I'll, I won't ring, but it is, it's an interesting thing. Cause like I, it's more nuanced than this, but I understand citizens get angry, right? They see a lot of money going into a program that seems like it's serving um, on the surface only like, Oh, you just want like movie stars in your city. So you're giving them all this money when the reality of productions that people don't understand. And I love to talk about it anytime I can is that productions are made up of, hundreds of jobs of a wide range of different pay income pay rates incomes union gigs everything and you know there's always this perception of um sort of like elitism political elitism financial elitism in the, in the film industry yet 90 plus percent of the people i work with um uh, you know i i would think would consider them as having you know for what we consider labor jobs blue collar jobs and i mean yeah. that in a positive way not a negative way like it's it is labor hard work and it's a lot of work for people and it brings a lot of money in but it's intangible to the locals like it's sort of like well how does that money end up in my pocket and so it's so high profile these programs yet um and they get a lot of attention for the cities and the states but the citizens themselves only see the struggles which i understand anyone look anyone who was in miami in 2005 remembers the the two weeks they were shooting the Michael Bay was shooting the chase scene, you know, in front of the Miami Herald building on the road there. And, you know, it, it nearly stopped the city in its tracks for a week. And so it's one of those things where um, I get it. Like I get the struggle for people to understand the programs and how they can be helpful. Um, but it's a shame, you know, when it, when cities, um, you know, start to thrive on them just as the programs get pulled, because it also takes years to cultivate the kind of crews and the yeah. kind of and, you know, especially now as we talk about diversity and, and film crews, you know, you get the potential for a city as diverse as Miami to, um, to train a whole new generation of 
people of color, of Latinos to be in the film industry would be, would be thrilling to see that happen in Miami could, if the, like you said, if the incentive programs were there, there'd just be so many advantages and so many opportunities, but uh, you know, hopefully, hopefully soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm going to jump ahead. So. Actually, but actually, uh, JL, do, I'm, I'm JL. Yeah, I'm JL. <laughs> I, I just wanted to ask before we, you know, kind of move off from the Miami thing, your, your family's Cuban, right? Yes. Yeah. My parents, uh, you know, came over when they were really young. Um, and so, uh, but they came over to Miami. Um, they grew up in Miami. My sister and I were born in Miami. Uh, I went to college at UM. Um, you know, sort of Miami's, I moved around a lot as a kid. So Miami's always been the, um, what do you call it? Not the North Star, the true North. We, we always ended up back there, you know? So I had, I've had two years in like nearly every neighborhood <laughs> in Miami wow. at some point in my life or another. Um, and then I moved to LA after, after graduating in 2005. And, uh, and I just, lo- I love Los Angeles, but, um, but I definitely miss, miss Miami. I would love the opportunity to work in Miami. Um, and you know, I I think there was a TV show, Oh, the Baker and the beauty. I remember that kind of came around anything that has anyone that's Cuban. It's, uh, you know, at some point the script just comes around, not like offers or any people just like, Oh, there's this project. And I remember being like, oh, it's Miami. Are they shooting there? Because if it's shooting in Miami, I, I feel like I kind of have to at least do it. And they're like, oh, no, it's going to be shooting in Puerto Rico for Miami. And- <laughs> right. You know, and right. uh, what, I w- what I was actually going to bring up is um, in Homecoming, which the second season of Homecoming, and we'll dive into this a little bit later, but, the, the, but Homecoming actually takes place in, or there is, the, the corporation takes place in Florida. There's a, a component that that takes place in Florida, and so if we had those incentives in place, who would have known? You could have been here, and 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 we could have shot. Really, literally, we could. It could have been parts of it could have been shot here, you know, at least in Florida. But we know that you know they didn't shoot in Florida, so. Yeah. And season two is is California, but season one has so much in Florida, and to their credit. Um, they did a pretty good job. Like I kind of fell for it uh, at times where I was like, I don't know where some of these buildings are. Um, and they're all just like in torrents, you know, and they did some, yeah. some stuff to pull it off. But, you know, it's interesting. I'm always impressed when people look at Florida and Miami, it, well, Florida in general, but Miami especially is more than just uh, ocean drive, you know, um, yeah. <laughs> things that, sh- that take place in Miami, you get the same B-roll shots of women in bikinis and Ocean Drive, you know, and then, and then they cut to something that clearly is at Los Angeles. And so whenever anyone can pull off LA for Miami is, is good, but um, I would certainly be, uh, if I ever worked on something that had a scene in Miami, I'd, I'd, be, uh, I'd be fighting to, I'd be like, you guys, please don't make me shoot, you know, a corner of Long Beach. <laughs> 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 yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's uh they talk about those scenes in Scarface that you can tell with the sort of the red line in the no parking zone that that's an LA line, not a Miami line. So you can actually determine what were the Miami scenes and the LA scenes in Scarface. Uh, I I love that in movies like uh, I think it's The Matrix. You can tell some there's a couple, you know, there's a couple things in the background where you're like, "Wait, I don't think that that's uh I don't think that's Chicago or they never actually when it's they're inside the Matrix never explicitly say Chicago, but all the street names are Chicago street names, you know. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I I just want to kind of bring it back to uh your days in Miami, you know, as a youth. Mm-hmm. Um can you talk about how you how you grew up and then what made you go in the direction of storytelling, filmmaking, because you did t- television and film. There's so many different names for it now, you know, content creating um, and you go back and forth. And I also know that you, you know, you're a very well accomplished editor as well. So um, 
What made you decide to, to go in this direction? You know, I remember uh, to keep keeping it in Florida. I remember we were living around Tampa Bay area at the time. And when I was probably around like seven or eight and started showing interest in, in movies um, and my mom, thankfully, uh, started encouraging me to like rent older movies when we would go into Blockbuster, right? So it was a lot of, um, especially like Hitchcock movies. I had a taste for the macabre, I think, you know, when I was young. And so you, um, the good thing is, is when you have a desire to sort of see gory stuff, it can lead you down the path of better taste, i.e. Hitchcock and some of the great suspense filmmaking, right, of that time. Um, And so that, worked out well for me because you know there i was like jog shuttling on the vhs of of uh um of sleeping beauty to see like the two frames of blood from the dragon's belly you know like that kind of kid and um and then so i was like oh what are these movies like what are these movies about serial killers but they were in black and white and my mom was letting me rent them you know and so that sort of led me into um not just thinking that new movies are the only interesting thing, you know, which is like, as as soon as you get that idea in your head and you're not um, averse to something that's in black and white or something that's a little bit slower, even as a kid, um, then you can absorb it all. And then it was basically just me, you know, my parents had to travel a lot for work. And so I would go on a Thursday to Blockbuster and stack up on movies and spend my whole weekends, you know, at home with the babysitter downstairs and me upstairs, just watching tons and tons of movies. And so it started with a love for movies that then, uh, the thing I found by the time I didn't really, I studied music mostly through high school. I was going to high school in Northern California and I was, you know, doing, playing a lot of instruments and everything, but my love was in movies and I sort of knew I wanted to keep doing that in college. And then, um, but you know, you start now I'm going off, sorry, the long answer, but then you no, start you love long answers. So go ahead. Start, uh, studying. Once you start studying film at film school, I mean, what happens is, and you guys I'm sure know this feeling is, is, the loving something and making something can be two totally different things. And they're not exclusive of each other. I think you're better when you, you know, love both, even though a lot of the filmmakers I've ever loved didn't particularly even like watching movies, you know, but, um, uh, which is always alarming to hear whenever you read stories about Kubrick being like, not really like loving movies, you know, but loving filmmaking. But it was an interesting thing to see you, you go into college and you have a bunch of colleagues and everyone kind of loves watching movies. And then as it starts to like actually making something, you start to realize the differences, right? Making something is really, really different. And there's a fork in the road once you start sort of seeing how the sausage is made and either you fall more in love with it or you start just being like, oh, you know what? That's This is taking away for me, the thing I love about it. So, um, and I'm grateful that I loved the process that a lot of the things, um, I like in work, uh, you know, leadership management, uh, time management, people management, uh, all those things that I actually enjoy are also like crucial parts of filmmaking, right? The less exciting things that no one ever writes books about or really talks about, but I happen to enjoy those things too. So it created a, like a nice alchemy where I could do the thing I loved while the actual work itself is something I enjoy too. Um, other than, you know, the parts where you have to like beg people for money. <laughs> but I think that's... <laughs> well, th- this is great, you know, because that, that, that's something that you, the left brain and the right brain marry in what became your love, you know? But uh, we, so all three of us went to film school at the University of Miami, it seems. And <laughs> I remember my first class with uh, Paul Lazarus, who was, you know, a Hollywood legend. And, you know, he was the director of the program then, and he 
lumbered down, you know, in this big kind of auditorium seating classroom, and he wrote something on the board, art versus commerce. That was the first, that was my first introduction. I had already taken, I started in front of the camera, so I'd already been in the industry. But I'd, I'd taken some stabs at kind of connecting with the industry. But when he wrote that and what he said next, that helped to guide my path too, which was filmmaking really is this battle of art versus commerce. And I was like, ding, okay. You know, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, and no one sees it or hears it fall, does it really fall? You know, so it is this constant pull and tug, you know, of trying to get your projects accomplished and, um, and, um, you know, getting, getting them out to the world and getting them seen. So, yeah. Yeah. Say that I love everything about filmmaking except that it costs money and moves slowly, right? Those are the only <laughs> and and I remember, look, I had that same class and and one thing I can I mean, and I had a few classes with with Paul Lazarus and always appreciated them. So I don't mean this negative, but he stuck to his text. So you're saying that and I that was the exact same thing that happened my first day in the class. I'm having like flashbacks. He also taught me um there was one of his also uh, quick sayings that was oh, always stuck in my brain was go, gross is good and net is bad. And that's, always, that's been a very good lesson to understanding how um, accounting works in this business. But yeah, it's always, look, there are a few filmmakers who either have unimaginable success early on or have access to a lot of money or whatever that get to work in a vacuum their entire lives or they get product, uh, protected by certain producers and they just get to always work with these blinders on of how do you get something made? I've always had to be a producer on my own things and I've always had to learn that it's about compromise. It's about, um, you never get to, you, I, I really, um, I have like an aversion a, a to, I understand why we talk about like a tour theory on a, on a, um, on a studies level, you know, on a film studies level, but in reality, there's just no such thing. Like there's, unless you're, unless you're one of those rare few people that gets to make a movie in a bubble. Um, but you know, if anything I've learned is that if you try to be that 1% in this business, you're gonna fail. If you're gonna be, if you're, that's not to say to not be ambitious and to not hold yourself to the degree of wanting to become Scorsese or wanting to become Paul Thomas Anderson or something. But at the same time, that kind of ambition can also it needs a balance. And so for me, it was about, yeah, learning that, okay, I do want to make, I still want to be making art films. I still want to be making strange, you know, strange things and things that are difficult to get made. And that's always going to be my pursuit, but balancing that or uh, having to find the way you have to always compromise to find a way to get that made no matter. And, and guess what? Even the people I know who make $200 million movies, you know, budgeted movies, they still are compromising left and right. There's never, there, any, anyways, that's a whole, that's a whole different thing, but it really is. It's so true. There's an art and a commerce and um, the film business uh, costs too much and makes people too much money for you to just ignore one side or the other. Cause you also have plenty of people who only want to think about the commerce and they want filmmaking to be a formula. They want to be able to say, if we have this filmmaker and this actor with this storyline that hits these beats that are in Joseph Campbell's book, it will make money. And so you're also constantly battling um, people who want to formulize success when the truth is, um, you know, when a movie blows up, when a paranormal activity blows up, there is no, there was not a formula for that, right? Or, um, you know, whatever it might be, when, when uh, you know, let's even something, when sex lies in videotape, right, blows up and basically starts a whole new era of like indie filmmaking, there was no, there is no formula for that, yet everyone, there was, there's a ton of business people who don't care about the art side at all. That's the thorn in their side. 
And um, the best people in this business on both on the creative spectrum and the business side are the ones that respect the other side, I, I think. Yeah. Oh, those, are, those are really great points. Absolutely. Um, and I, I just wanted to ask, you know, because I know that, you know, your time at UM, you know, similar to all of us, that you kind of learned sort of the, not only the technical, the, the business side, but also the creative development side and how to actually physically make a movie. You know, but one of the last pieces of advice I got is if you really want to know or learn show business, at some point you got to go out to LA, uh, which is the business side of it. And I did. I went about a year after film school. And I always like to ask, in addition to our Miami ties, you know, what was your LA story? What was it first like moving to LA, having had this sort of wealth of knowledge from UM to start, you know, a, a, hopefully a life and a career out there? But, but before we get to that, did you do your first film before you went to LA? Or was it? I graduated from UM. I took like two or three weeks to just like relax. And then I, I put everything in a car and drove to LA. I okay. was, um, I'd spent the summer before my last year at UM in LA. I had a couple older friends, a couple years older than me who had apartments and I crashed on sofas and kind of just spent like a month in the city um, trying to take meetings, you know, like as a student, like what can I do when I move here in a year, that kind of thing, but also getting a sense of um, the neighborhoods in LA. I find a lot of people that move to LA without at least visiting first are almost un really unhappy because there's not really any um, healthy guides to like what streets do you live on? And LA is this, it's not like New York. New York is this, um, it's so easy to fall in love with New York, right? It's all crammed into this one space and it's busy and it's tall and, um, and it's bustling. LA is the, uh, like kind of the exact opposite. It's really, really spread out. There's dozens and dozens of neighborhoods that are far apart from each other. As opposed to New York, you know, you can walk a couple blocks and you're now in the next neighborhood. And so um, it can be intimidating and every neighborhood kind of fits people in different ways, depending on what you're looking for, what kind of people, what kind of bars, what kind of anyways, and also what kind of rent you can afford to pay all of those things. And so, um, yeah, I moved out right away. Um, had a job that was really painful at my first job. I was an office PA at a production company and um, I hadn't thought about it in a long time. And recently we connected with someone there and we were both reminding ourselves of the stories of it was an abusive place. Like I, I openly talk about, I mean, I, I don't even care if I even say the name of the company because I'm they're not really making movies that much anymore. And, um, but I mean, it was abusive. I was yelled at, I was pushed against walls. I had things thrown at me. I mean, all the horror stories, all Swimming with sharks. Swimming with sharks, all those stories. It was true. But what I, the, the falsehood I learned a little bit to bring it back to that, what you were saying about film school and you need to be in LA is um, LA can help you get your foot in the door, but it can also slam that door against your foot so many times that you never get to walk through it, right? So, um, you know, when people ask about, oh, moving to LA or not, I always just say, like, look, it's almost always you're going to want to be building a community around you, right? Um, either if you're a filmmaker or if you're an editor, you're going to be wanting to find filmmakers. You're going to want to be, um, uh, you know, you're, there's people and there's people in UM that, uh, that I met at UM, my roommates from UM, I'm writing movies with them and we're making, we make movies together and all, and all of that stuff. And so it's finding the community is really important and you just have a infinitely higher chance of finding a community in LA. That does not mean you can't find your community in Seattle like many great filmmakers have or in Austin like many great filmmakers have you know these communities or you know you look at 
all the FSU kids, you know, like Barry uh, Jenkins and, and Adela Romanski, who's been producing all his movies, and James Laxton, who shoots all his movies, um, they all met, and Nat Sanders, who edits all of them, they all met at college in Florida, you know? So um, there's, an, anyways, there isn't a, a, the rule, right, that, oh, you need to go to LA, can, can be a fallacy, right? Because, but at the same time, um, it's sort of like if you're going to need a job and you're going to want a job in the industry, and uh, you're going to want to raise your chances of meeting people at a party or something that you might work with, then LA is a good place to be. But if you also want to, um, you know, I think about like Trey, who I was at, was just thinking about Trey Schultz because we were both jurors at Miami Film Festival a few years ago together. And like, he just made a movie in his backyard in Texas. And so it's a, there's a weird balance and there isn't a rule, but yeah, I mean, it's, if someone's like, I don't know what I should do and I know I need to move somewhere and I don't want to stay and wherever my call, I'm like, well, if you're going to move somewhere, then move to LA and at least, you know, try it out. But I, I fortunately love LA. Like I love living here. I've lived in a lot of different cities. It's easily my favorite place I've lived. Um, I've been here 15 years now and, um, I'd be, you know, I just like, I like being here. <laughs> so I, but I, I, I have a lot of empathy for the people who the city doesn't fit them well. And that shouldn't be a, a that shouldn't be a, especially nowadays, as we talk about, um, what we started talking about with, uh, t- incentives and tax shelters and all these things, it, there's plenty of production happening in other cities. And in fact, um, a lot of kids I, that I went to college with moved to Albuquerque uh, right away. They just heard, they knew someone there with a little bit of work and then they were working on Avengers in two years while I was, you know, still hope trying to raise money for a movie. So, you know, it's interesting. Each city can have its own life, I guess. <laughs> so you're, you're tooling around in this production company, uh, I guess, trying to figure it out, figure out how to really take a deep dive into the industry. What happens next? Yeah, it was very much about Um, I mean, I knew I wanted to be directing and I wanted to be writing a movie, but I also knew I needed an income and how that was going to work. So then I had to leave that. I left that job. I I quit. It was the first time I've ever quit anything in my life. Um, But I didn't, I found the abuse to actually be wrong. Um, Of course, now we're understanding uh, that culture a little bit more 15 years later and what allows it and how to deal with it and everything. Um, uh, but, uh, but I did it. Weirdly, um, I knew someone who knew someone who was connected to Warren Beatty and he was looking for an assistant and like a young assistant. So then I got a job working for him. But again, that's like, if I wasn't in LA, that job probably wouldn't have come up. I don't think I would have been, if I was, you know, in Sacramento visiting my friends I went to high school with, I don't think I would have gotten a call saying like, hey, do you have, can you go get lunch with Warren Beatty tomorrow, right? So that was like a weird, surreal thing. And I went and worked with him for a year and a half. Um, But, you know, he wasn't making anything at the time. Uh, There were some murmurs of what became, uh, uh, what was it, the rules don't apply, but it, it was still 10 years away from happening, 10 plus years. And I felt I had to be like working. And so I was actually had been, one of the things I learned I really loved in filmmaking at UM was editing. And it's something I always tell people to uh, never be, even though you usually go to film school saying, oh, I want to be a director or a writer or a producer. There's so many aspects of filmmaking to just make sure your um, your uh, heart is open to them, you know? And for me, I really loved editing. And um, I remember Dia Contaxis would spend, really held my hand through editing one of my shorts. And it made me fall in love with that process. And so I was getting a lot of editing. I, I knew the software well. 
So I was getting a lot of editing gigs uh, doing uh, on the side that I was just doing in my very small few hours of free time I had when I was working for Warren. And I built up enough to be able to leave working for Warren and do that freelance. And so I was a freelance editor for a few years while I tried to get the first movie made. Um, so it was, you know, and that, and that took three or four years of financing and writing it. And, uh, it was an article I optioned from a magazine. And so, and that's a whole nother story that would be, you know, another long conversation of not knowing any lawyers and learning how to reading law books to learn how to read an option agreement and how to write one and, um, and get one drafted up that I knew I wasn't signing something wrong and getting the money to be able to pay the writer for the, I mean, it was a whole thing. And it, but it didn't happen quickly. It took, you know, three or four years to get that first movie going from the time I read the article to the time, you know, we actually finished it. And that so was like a GQ article, right? I think it was in GQ, this article? article by a writer named David Rothbard, who at the time was notable for, uh, a, uh, he was a, a frequent contributor to This American Life, but mostly for creating something, this, this little cult magazine called Found Magazine. Um, and, uh, they had a couple of successful like omnibus collections and all of that. And so he fortunately was a guy kind of doing his thing and writing in Michigan and is just the most gracious and is now a filmmaker and we're still close friends, like really gracious guy who just sort of gave a 22 year old guy a chance really. And, um, and, and it was a different time. Uh, the economy, at the time, it was before things collapsed. So there was, it was, raising money was hard and took three years, but there was a way to raise money. You know, there were people, you know, I'd moved around a lot as a kid. So I knew some people with wealth and I had made some connections in LA and, you know, I was able to put money together in a way that I don't, I couldn't even today if I wanted to, even having made three movies and done TV for five years. Like it's a uh, financing is a whole nother that we could do a whole nother episode about that. <laughs> but you know, years of work into it, you know, happened. And then, uh, you know, you, we got to make the movie and then putting the movie out was a struggle because it was, we didn't get into any of the major festivals, but then we started winning a bunch of awards at the mid-level festivals. And then that got at the attention of the spirit awards. And then we won a spirit award and then that helped, you know, help sort of elevate it a little bit, but it never really blew up. So then you're going into the second movie and now the economy's crashed. And so you're, you're going, Oh, okay. It's, that was a whole nother uphill battle. And the writer was way more famous who had given me the rights to the story. Cause he liked my first movie. Um, it was, it was complicated. And that those things actually weirdly, uh, the things that sound like they would be pluses, um, actually made it a little bit harder to mount and get going. So it was, it was interesting. In some ways, the second movie was tougher, which was a thing no one really talked about until Sundance started a program that was called, uh, I forgot what it's called. I've been, um, I've been a mentor for there. But, you know, it's all about trying to help first-time filmmakers get their second movie going. Because a lot of times, people put all their investment, all their time, all their money, um, everything they have into that first movie, and you assume that if it's well-received, it's a ticket. But it really isn't. It's the. It's really just about the ticket is the persistency and keeping on doing it year after year after year, as opposed to just getting that first thing going. Right. Yeah. So um, I, I I didn't see your first film, and I, I, maybe I should have asked for it in advance. But almost, um, almost impossible to get your hands on. I haven't watched it in ten years. I ran. I I occasionally get emails from people who are like, I just watched it. And I'm like, how, how did you even come? <laughs> yeah. But, um, I was introduced to you as a filmmaker with, uh, your second film, COG, which I loved, you know, 
And uh, the way that you accomplished, you know, this character-centered film, but still, you know, it had a the surreal kind of feel to it, you know, and the way that character affects the world around him, um, it really blew me away, you know, and to me, and I've seen, you know, a lot of your work, it, it kind of set the tone for me uh, feeling your work, you know, feeling you as a film, as a storyteller, because I, I don't want to just say filmmaker, because, you know, you do television as well, but as, as a storyteller. So can you talk a little bit about the feel of COG, you know, how you connected on, you know, the style, the look, the, 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 uh, the cinematography, you know, can you contextualize that a little bit for me? Absolutely. I mean, you know, it was something I wrote, it was a story I'd really loved. Um, when I was a kid, I'd been a really big David Sedaris fan and, um, you know, he'd been so known for his humor, but I found this uh, darkness in his earlier work that really appealed to me, and like a darkness within, you know, within the context of a comedy. And that really appealed to me because I was loving, you know, I was growing up on like Election and Citizen Ruth and Welcome to the Dollhouse and, and trying to hold on to that kind of idea and then kind of making a movie where you can follow a character and there's a sort of meandering quality to it. It's episodic, which I think makes it a challenge. And I think, um, makes that movie a little bit more of an acquired taste, which I'm okay with, <laughs> you know, because I think some people, if they're, and I don't know. I mean, I, there's, I would, you know, people go, oh, do you, do you look back? Would you change anything? And I'm like, well, I don't really look back on the movies. You know, I try to just like, you finish them, you watch them once or twice at a film festival or a premiere. And then I try to just like almost totally move on from them. But you know, for me with that one, it was, it was interesting. It was really about learning, um, there was a lot of challenges in our budget. It was written to be a slightly bigger scale movie and we could never get it financed. And, um, and by that, I mean like a $2 million movie as opposed to a $300,000 movie, right? Um, or a few hundred thousand dollar movie. And so in a lot of ways, it was a pursuit of, can we make this film and tell this story with those limitations in place and really utilize um, location work? You know, my first two, I'd never been on a soundstage shot anything on a soundstage until my third movie. I think we built one two-wall set for easy with practice just for two shots, and that was it. And so um, for me, it was, uh, I'm grateful for that because you learn a lot about location work and how do you um, maximize if you're up there in Portland. Thankfully, we shot in Portland and in the areas around, um, and it's so naturally beautiful, and it's such a place that's great for exterior photography because it's always overcast. So you can't afford, normally outside photography in indie movies looks so painful because there's no, you don't have the time for diffusion, right? So when we're shooting Homecoming season two, we shot a, you know, a couple of weeks out in a dirt field and we had giant rigs that, you know, we're, we're, we're hanging giant, we're basically covering the sky with diffusion, right? Um, we've never been able to afford that on COG, but we're in Portland and it's raining every single day and it's overcast every single day. And so you were able to create this scope and this beauty um, on a really little, on a really limited budget. Um, anyways, long, long answer to say that the movie, I, I was also um, putting some more of myself into it too, like emotionally, like telling, uh, uh, you know, a story about a gay guy trying to figure out, what his place is and how his identity works that isn't your um hopefully isn't and i think this is where it kind of confused people i i've learned over time 
sorry, now I'm ranting that sometimes, um, I, and having gone to a lot of LGBT film festivals and been jurors at them and watched a lot of movies, it's like usually when something's a little out of left field in that genre, it kind of throws people off a bit. If you don't have your the familiar beats or the familiar heartwarming moments or the things that sort of make you feel more, make uh, non-queer audiences or even queer audiences feel more comfortable, if it makes you feel more uncomfortable, it actually... Uh, um, throws people off, I think. So the fact that, that that movie has like a very dark ending and it's like Dennis O'Hare leaving Jonathan Groff by the side of the road after basically, you know, tearing into him and calling him slurs. Uh, I think a lot of people were like, wait, what the fuck is this movie saying? <laughs> and I remember seeing um, uh, uh, Nasty Baby a few years later and really liking it. But that was a movie about like a gay couple trying to get a sperm donor, right? It sounds like it's like a cute movie that you're going to like learn about, you know, the trials and tribulations of having a baby as a gay couple. And they're like halfway through, they're like, no surprise. This is about killing our angry um, homeless neighbor, right? And people like were yeah. up and hated that movie. They were like up in arms about it. And I was like, why? And I realized it was because of that, because um, there's a certain expectation or desire to want your, um, your love Simon kind of quality out of, out of those sort of stories. And I was resisting that and I'm proud that I resisted it. But anyways, that's where my brain goes. When I think back on that movie, I think back about the production troubles and uh, what I learned from those. And also what I learned about putting a movie out a div- something that's divisive and and that was helpful when it came to like season two of homecoming and learning to be prepared for those things <laughs> yeah but looking into cog and this is what i was saying about you know connecting with you as a storyteller it is very character driven and i personally am drawn to the types of stories that you said maybe you know make people feel a little bit off kilter You know, some of my favorite filmmakers, David Lynch, you know, he's one of my favorite filmmakers. Um, But even if you go further back, you know, Satya Jit Ray, which, um, you know, a lot of people don't, you know, they're thinking of Kurosawa, Truffaut, Godard, you know, these kind of filmmakers. But, you know, for me, it's been, you know, storytellers that, you know, tell different types of stories that you don't necessarily, uh, you know, hear and and, and feel. So for that, um, seeing this character-driven piece and this is what I was saying for me is the connection to your work as a whole. All For me, the work that I've seen of yours really feels intensely character driven and, you know, more um, in, intensely driven by, you know, the psychology of the character and the, and the minds of the, the specific characters. So I want to move on from COG uh, to, to your next project. COG, did it, it debuted at Sundance, is that right? Yeah, it played at Sundance where the first movie didn't get in. So that was like a nice, uh, that was a good feeling. And it helped, you know, a movie like that, that was tough, even though I had the David Sedaris name on it, but it definitely helped people understand that. But yeah, I remember going on to Stanford, what you were going to, you tapped into something It reminded me that after Stanford premiered, I remember a film critic coming up to me and being like, I've seen all three of your movies and I think you're just interested in how uncomfortable you can make people. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> I think I like, and I think it's what you were tapping into. It's like, oh, I like being uncomfortable in a theater, right? I like being uncomfortable and being um, sort of challenged or being put into uncomfortable. And like my first movie had, you know, is this NC-17 movie with no sex or nudity in it and just just language because it's about phone sex. And COG, I think, is uh, constantly about uncomfortable humor. And, And Stanford, obviously, is about an increasing sense of 
um, uncomfortability that leads to distortion, you know, of, of personality and mind. And so um, I definitely think there's maybe some truth into that, uh, that, that I do, I like that feeling. I, kn- I think I know how to make that subconsciously for whatever reason, like to uh, engage in that feeling of uncomfortability. So I'm sort of like, oh, I got to go find a way to make a horror movie, I think, but I haven't done we're, that. We're waiting for it. We're Me waiting t- for it. <laughs> but what's great about that is, you know, what, what, trust me, I do love, you know, the Michael Bay, you feel it in the moment and it's adrenaline and everything. And, you know, so you feel that, but I, I love, you know, when I leave to be able to think about the film or the television show later and, you know, continue to think about it and, 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 you know, dive into it later, you know, the, and, 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 you know, that has these, you know, challenging moments and the layers. So I do find that in your work. I just want to talk about a Stanford really quick. Um, all-star cast, Billy Crudup, love him. Um, Ezra Miller, you know, like, wow, did his career blow up, you know, uh, Thomas Mann. Um, I'm a huge succession fan, but um, so it's my favorite thing on TV right now. And it was, it's interesting because when we were casting all those kids, um, you know, they all had credits, like people, you know, they had things, but I was fighting for them. I was, uh, you know, I remember I was having to just be like, this is, you know, there was a lot of pressure to cast older kids um, that, you know, had more of careers at the time. Uh, you know, this is a business that constantly casts 35 year olds as 15 year olds, you know, oh, so it's right, right. always at all to be like, no, this is what 18 year, and we have some older kids in Stanford, but I mean, few and far between compared to what it could have been. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that was the big, that, that was the sort of defining thing of that movie is, okay, we're going to go make this low budget movie. Most of our budget was just, you have 25 leads who are in nearly ever 22 leads or whatever, who are nearly every single scene together. And even though everyone was being paid the union minimum for that movie, just having 20 people on set together costs a lot of money, even at a union minimum. So most of our budget, I mean, most of the budget of that movie was just in having that large of a speaking cast and knowing that that was a fundamental part of telling of that story. If you started just, there was pressure to sort of reduce some of the other kids roles into just like non-speaking extras basically. And um, you can't do that. And look, it even happened on homecoming sometimes where there's an extra without a line, but they have to interact with the lead cast and producers are always like, well, just make them an extra. But as soon as someone's an extra, you can't speak to them as a director. I can't go to an extra and say, okay, do the AD can, but as soon as I do, you're breaking the union rules and now they're bumping up a step, you know, and you have to pay them more. And so anyways, that's a whole complication of that movie was the puzzle of making that movie logistically was figuring that out. And then creatively it was, oh, well, how the hell do you make a two hour movie that, predominantly takes place in in a tiny hallway um the size of a bedroom you know and that was the that was sort of the fun of that and pushed me more into i was just living off naturalism right um everything is grounded nearly everything is eye level um most the coverage is is really simple and stanford was the first time that if you sort of um not to say that's certainly not lazy filmmaking but if i didn't become more active in, with the camera, that movie wouldn't have survived, right? It wouldn't have worked. And so it forced me to say, okay, well, I have to start moving the camera more. I have to start finding a way to use the camera to tell the, to tell the story. And that was not um, a tool. I hadn't been resisting it, but I hadn't really had a story that that required that, you know? And then, of course, 
Um, by the time then you get into TV or bigger scale productions, then that becomes the, you know, the most complicated shot in Stanford is this uh, overhead shot that passes over the, the roof of the walls as the kids are fighting the guards. And it's like, a, you know, in the, in the show, I mean, in the movie, it's like eight seconds. But that was the most complicated shot. Most time I'd ever, money I'd put into one shot ever in my life. And like on Homecoming, we were doing that two or three times a day, you know? So that's how that, <laughs> how that right. escalated. Yeah, I mean, certainly Stanford, it, 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 it had that claustrophobic, claustrophobic frenetic feel and, and uncomfortableness, you know, that, that, that you mentioned. But um, certainly there's a big difference between, you know, uh, all the characters having notes themselves and adding to the flavor and, and, and the soup of it that really adds to, you know, what makes that film so great. Um, I just want to, you know, take a little side note. Yeah, you did say, you know, that, well, Billy, Billy Crudup definitely, you know, had a name, you know, by then. But, you know, Ezra Miller, Thomas Mann, I mean, some of the, they, they were still on the precipice. You know, they weren't, you know, through the stratosphere names at that point. And certainly, you know, you, it, you, you pulled out of them, you know, unique performances and that's on, on many uh, levels and many layers. But man, I couldn't imagine in such a tight space the blocking uh, that had to take place for that movie, you know? I mean, it's still like, I still have not, not, there was a few, I always went in with a plan, right? There was always a plan and we mostly stuck to it. There's one scene that's early on when they keep repeating the numbers over and over again. And it was never, it was sort of vaguely scripted because I knew it had, I knew the shape of it and how it had to escalate. But that was the only scene where we kind of, there was a little bit more improvisation. It was our second day of shooting and we just sort of ran the camp. I think we were running like 30 minute long takes. And that scene has so many cuts and it took so long to assemble because we were shooting it semi-improvisationally. Um, so the blocking in that scene in particular was really difficult. But yeah, that was, um, and it's so tough because you're also blocking so many more people, right? And they're all actors that you've hired and you're treating, they're, none of them were day players, right? So you have to have, yet we were shooting like, you know, 14, 15 pages a day, or 12 pages to 14 pages a day sometimes. And so I did, I, I had, there was little prep and only half a day of rehearsal. And what I told all those kids was like, look, I am here for you, but I can't be here for you the way I would like to be and the way you would like to be. So if you don't hear from me during the shoot, remind yourself every day it's because it's all going okay. You know, don't, don't think I'm playing favorites because I'm talking to someone else more. Don't think that person's messing up more. I don't have the time to be as balanced as I would like to be. So trust me and trust yourself. You know, I sort of said that speech to everybody because if not, Norm, I was used to making these movies like COG was just Jonathan Groff every day. It's me and Jonathan Groff in an apple field and a guy with a camera on his shoulder and we're just side by side, you know, and it's so much more intimate. But Stanford helped prepare me for what's a little bit more can be like TV shooting where you have to move really quickly and you also have to, uh, you have to pick your battles. You're going to, you're going to um, bond with some actors, some other actors you're not going to bond with, you know, you're going to have to learn how to get the most out of them and cooperate with them when they're going to be stubborn about blocking. Um, you know, the, it definitely introduced me to, uh, I think had I, 
gone into TV before doing Stanford, it probably wouldn't have worked out well for me. I'll say it that way. <laughs> yeah, right, that's so- interesting because I, I'd love to just kind of, you know, because I, I, I just saw the first episode of the second season of Homecoming last night. I loved it. But I think, you know, just going back to the career journey, uh, after making these great films that, you know, got into Sundance and, and had all this buzz and the Indie Spirit Awards, at what point did you consciously make a decision that you wanted to transition to TV or is that just opportunities that arose at a certain point in your career? I mean, I've been wanting to do TV. Like, you know, you're always trying to find a way um, to be it for your uh, work to also be a career and your career to also serve to be able to like live off of, right? That's the dream. The dream is for that Venn diagram for the thing I love doing and it to be a job. And really like being an indie filmmaker is not a sustainable um, life. And I say that in that I'm still an indie filmmaker. I spend most of my time trying to get movies off the ground. I just haven't succeeded, right? I've, people are like, oh, you haven't made a movie since Stanford. And I'm like, oh, I've been making movies since Stanford. Just none of them have gone in front of cameras. But I mean, I've got, you know, a dozen scripts and half a dozen heartbreaks of fully cast movies and pre-production thing. I mean, you know, it's, I could go on many that have never been reported about people don't even know about that kind of thing. And so, um, but I'd been wanting to get into TV, but TV way more than film has the conundrum of, well, you can't do TV. You have to have done TV to get more TV jobs, but you can't do TV unless you've done TV, right? So there's this chicken and egg thing of like, well, how do you know how to do it? So like I'd been meeting at with TV companies. I think I met at HBO like eight times, you know, and they were just like, well, you know, and I was trying to vie for certain jobs and everything. And there was just, it was just never happening. And fortunately, um, I'd been tracing... Uh, speaking about persistence, right? I've been tracing 13 reasons. It was a book. I was aware of it. I was interested in doing something with, for teens and in that space. And especially after Stanford, it sort of reminded me that I love work. I learned that I loved working with that age range of actors. And so I sort of was following up with my agents over six years, I think about that. And then they were finally like, you know what? It's becoming a TV show, actually. You know, it's one of those things where like, well, it's a movie, they just hired a writer, so check back in in a year, you know, you do that kind of thing. And they're like, actually, and they're meeting with um, directors. And they were meeting with a director to try to take it out to networks at the time. So I was a long shot because doing the first episode is the most coveted job in in television, right? It's the most lucrative, it's the most... uh, um, creative, all of the, all of those aspects, doing the pilot or whatnot. It sets the tone. So it's the tone. It's, it's, it's what you're aiming for in, in TV, uh, in a lot of ways. Um, sometimes even more so than doing every episode, but that's a whole different piece of a conversation. But, um, so I met on it knowing that it was a long shot for me. And at the time there was only like two other directors meeting on it. Um, and I got along really, really well with everyone involved. I had a really personal connection to the story. Um, I had a really strong take on it, but they smartly decided to actually take it out without a director. They met with a few directors, many names bigger than me. And it, it wasn't personal. It was just like, you know what? We, we have Selena Gomez as a producer. We're just, that's going to be enough. And they were right. And they got it set up at Netflix. And then they got Tom McCarthy. But to their credit, um, they remembered me. And so four months later, they were like, hey, look, we loved you. And would you be interested in doing these episodes. And for me, that was just that, that was that fight I'd been waiting, you know, I would argue five, six years or sort of campaigning for that chance. And then, you know, that chance, obviously the show blew up in a way no one anticipated, no one expected. And that opened up a whole nother host of obviously controversies behind the show. And I could do a whole nother podcast episode. about (laughs) One of my daughter's favorite shows, you know, that this is, you know, to be able to connect with, you know, a, a storyteller, in your family, you know, so, you know, my daughter and I have had substantive conversations about the show. So, 
yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you on that, but it's interesting. I, I hope, you know, and the show's evolved over the seasons, you know, I was mostly deeply creatively involved in the first season. And then in the second season, I did the last episode, but I was around as a producer because the fires hit in Northern California where we shoot. And, um, and so there was a lot of reshoots and a lot of stuff that didn't get shot with directors who'd moved on. So I kind of had to go in. I was, I, I learned a lot about TV production that second season, but, um, but it was, it was an interesting experience because the show really blew up and it was sort of my first thing where then people, and I was fortunate enough to direct to be, to have been given the scripts for a couple of what turned out to be, I, I think, you know, I don't say that in because I, I'll say this with humility, like the scripts really start the TV, like TV's a, a bit of a roulette wheel when you sign on, especially to a brand new show, you're like, what script am I going to get? And you don't know. And you don't know till literally you're on the plane flying there. You don't know what you're going to do, what you're going to be shooting, what's going to happen, who the characters are, you know, nothing. And I remember getting on the, I got the scripts the day before I was going to get on a plane to go up to Northern California. And I opened the first page and I just remember being like, oh, I got the school dance episode. Thank God. I was like, I know I can do something with a school dance. I was like, I know the feelings of a school dance. And, um, and so, you know, I got some attention from that. Um, but I started realizing, and I learned this a little bit on Stanford. After Stanford, I just started getting scripts about kids, like literally like any story about teens in prison I was getting sent. You know? <laughs> How many of those are there? <laughs> think, right? There it might be teens with superpowers in prison, right? That movie got made um, with, uh, with Amanda Stenberg. You know, there's like a few things here or there where it's like you kind of people, there's a short-sightedness. Not in the case of that movie, because I know those producers and I'm, making, I'm working with something with them on something now, but there can be a short-sightedness. So I was getting a lot of YA stuff after that. And there was kind of that feeling of like, well, I just did the YA thing. I want to do something else, you know? And so then it was a struggle to learn, okay, where do I want to be in the TV space? Where do I want to be career-wise? And then that led to Counterpart. Um, and sorry, I'm preempting your, your questions probably, or your structure. But, you know, it was an interesting thing. TV is about, um, especially when you're being an episodic director, the best advice I got is that TV... Um, and I don't know if he heard it from someone or he invented it, but I'll give John Krakitis the, the credit for it, uh, who directed like Kill Your Darlings and directs a lot of, like directed a lot of Star and Empire and stuff. And he was like TV, because he, he went into TV before I did, um, because, you know, Kill Your Darlings was much more successful than anything I've done. And, and, he, and he got that opportunity. He was so helpful to me. He was like, TV directing is, it, it, you're like the, um, uh, the substitute teacher. And as soon as he told me that, I, or episodic directing in TV, as soon as he said that to me, I 100% understood exactly what it is, right? So when you have, your, you have your bad substitute teacher that shows up and just puts a bad movie on that has nothing to do with your curriculum and sits in the corner on their phone or whatever, emailing. You also have the bad version of the substitute teacher who shows up and takes control over everything, like is trying to get you to do things that aren't in your syllabus, is giving you tests even though there wasn't one, right? Both of those are the bad extreme versions of it. The sweet spot's in the middle, which is you follow the curriculum, but you come in with an energy that excites the kids, right? That makes you wish that that substitute teacher was the one that came back. And like, that's what TV directing is really about. You have people who are a part of a nine month machine, right? Their eight month machine. This is their lifestyle. They go to set and back to their homes, to their families every day for months on end. As opposed to an indie film, you've got two and a half or three weeks. You burn the candle at both ends. You work as hard as you can. You work your crew as hard as they're, you know, obviously with consent as hard as they can. And you get it in the can. In TV, it's 
about stamina. It's about uh, the length of the production, the power of the cast, right? Because they're around longer than anybody else and more than anybody else. Um, the, you know, it's very much about fitting into the tone of something, reading the room and, um, and working for someone else, right? And when you're making an indie film, everyone answers to you. When you're making a TV show, you answer to the writers. And we are back. Oh, Woo! that was a cliffhanger. Woo! You're going to have to stay tuned for another one. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. That was hot. That was good stuff. Yeah, it was. And what I really enjoy, especially on the deep dives, is they end up becoming sort of master classes in not only the industry, but weaving your way through the labyrinth and, and, and making your way up because each journey is a different journey. Mm-hmm. And certainly, you know, his path on the way up through the industry was unique. So, oh, yes. Got to give it Absolutely. up. Part gotta two. give it up for Kyle. So you'll have to stay tuned for next week when you will see the epic conclusion to the life, the journey, the career that is Kyle Patrick Alvarez. Man, you must be in this industry. <laughs> The epic conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) So with that being said, we have to take this on a high note. A birthday note. Ah. Yes. One that uh, we unfortunately lost last year, but I would say uh, on both of our parts, you know, one of our favorite talents Absolutely. Yeah, this week would have marked the birthday of one Robin Williams, who, uh, yeah, absolutely one of the most, talk about positive figures. We talked about Walter Mercado in the intro, but another artist who really just, you know, no matter if he was doing comedy or drama, you could always feel good watching a Robin Williams movie, right? Just his whole persona and the way he approached each role. And, you know, even though he was hilarious, he just had this sensitivity and this earnestness that you just wanted to be around him and his characters like 24 seven. Yeah. And we talk about, you know, and I've said this on, you know, a few podcasts, I started in front of the camera And so one big thing that, you know, us actors always strive for is honesty. And all of his roles, there is a brutal honesty to them, whether it's comedic or whether it's dramatic. And there is a thin line between, you know, great comedy and drama. And, you know, we found out, you know, after, unfortunately, his passing that there was, you know, there were a lot of things that Robin Williams himself was, you know, that he was going through. And I'm sure that he drew from a lot of that you know, to bring to his roles and to bring to, you know, he's another multi-hyphenated, you know, TV, film, stand-up, of which, you know, you'd still catch some of that that uh, with him. He came from the stand-up world, but, um, you know, it's a tremendous talent and he's uh, missed. So Absolutely, all, our, yeah. all our listeners who have not uh, seen uh, all of his work or uh you know much of his work they should check check out you know robin williams uh, career there's there's plenty there's plenty mrs doubtfire is actually one of my favorite i'm gonna be honest with you oh really (laughs) there's just something about 
Mrs. Stoutfire, dear, I'm here to take care of the children. And you had that scene where he's dripping, remember? The whipped yeah. cream from his face. <laughs> yeah. Would you like some cocoa? Uh, <laughs> the thing <laughs> dripping down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, love, love me some Robin. Yeah, but I mean, uh, we, we cannot forget his film here in Miami. The Birdcage. Yeah. Oh, the yes, birdcage. absolutely. Love the Nathan Lane. One, two, three, Madonna. Hey, we have, oh, hey, what are you doing? Sorry, <laughs> come over here. We're coming inside. I don't know. Hey, Birdcage. It, it, it's like every performance is so him, but the fact that that was the Miami one was so brilliant. And Nathan yeah. Lane was spectacular as well. Yeah. And of course, you know, there is a connection, a podcast connection, because Nathan Lane stars in Penny Dreadful. That's right. Yeah, we had Adriana Barazza, who yeah. co-stars with Nathan Lane in that. So that's right. You know, Hollywood has Kevin Bacon and Miami has Kevin Sharpley. We're just all <laughs> six degrees. Well, we'll, of, say, we'll, we'll say screen heat Miami. <laughs> all right, we'll say screen heat Miami. Six, six degrees, degrees of separation. Of screen heat. Yeah. All right. And, um, that's another reason why I think people should listen to the podcast is see that we are actually six degrees of separation from anybody in Hollywood. Go and listen to go. our first 32 episodes and you will find the link. Yeah. That's right. And, uh, you know, go back, listen to, to listen to the Kareem interview. Mucho, mucho more. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And podcasts, you know, in, you know, in this time, which is, I don't know if we're going to be shut down again, but, um, you know, people are spending more time at home. They're listening to more podcasts. Podcasts, I mean, it doesn't get any bigger when a first lady starts a podcast and that's what's happening. Michelle Obama. She is starting her podcast August 29th on Spotify. First guest, president. President Obama. How did she land a president for the first guest? I don't know, man. That's like, I, I can't even That's imagine. Crazy. How would you even go about doing that? I don't know. But she broached it, so I guess we're going to now have to go. They have a production company, actually. So Oh, they do? Yes. Yeah. Oscar What's it called? Higher, higher, higher Ground or something like that? Yeah, Oscar nominated for their... Oscar um, nominated. Yeah, one of their first documentaries. So right. that that doesn't that put us kind of like in the crosshairs, the targets to uh, to try to land an interview with uh, Michelle and Barack. Who do we want to get first, though? That's the big question. I mean, it depends on how her. We got to get them goes. together. What are you talking about? You think so? Yeah, of course. That would be amazing. That would be yeah. amazing. There yeah. You go. So they're stepping into. Well, Michelle is stepping into that arena, the podcast arena. Um, I'm sure out of the gate, it's going to be, you know, at the top of Spotify's list. Spotify yeah. did a big, I mean, they're moving. They're spending a lot of money on, the, oh, the timing yeah. is right. So I'm sure. The Joe, the Joe Rogan experience. Yeah. That hundred million dollar deal was epic. And now, you know, they're really going for A-lister driven uh, podcast. But, you know, like you said, because of the times you're in, podcast is a relatively safe way of producing a lot of content. Yeah. So it's it's really one of those avenues that that really is just now starting to blow up and be really explored and not just unscripted, but scripted. You know, Demi Moore uh, just launched one called Dirty Diana. Have you heard about this one? No, I didn't. Oh, she yeah, just got married. Oh, Demi Moore. I'm, I'm Demi thinking Demi Moore, Lovato. Yeah, yeah. She just got married. Yeah, Demi Moore. Really? She launched one? Wow, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. She produces and stars in it. And it's uh, it's it's actually an erotic podcast. She's like a... She she has like some kind of financial day job, but at night her like side hustle is that she has this kind of erotic interview show thing with women, but it's all sensuality and sexuality from the women's point of view, 
which is kind oh, of oh, so it's like a it's like a story podcast. Yeah, it's scripted. Yeah, yeah, it's the scripted. whole thing is scripted. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah so it's it's interesting. I, I heard part of it the other night. It's pretty good. Yeah, and I love those. I you know have a scripted one myself, uh, the Beach Chronicles. So when are you going to get me on that one? By the way, <laughs> waiting for, well, waiting for you know, to call my agent. We still have to, yeah, we have to produce the next episodes. But um, our, 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 it was originally on David Lynch. Uh, he had a, a radio network, an online radio network. So we had a serialized version of the podcast, uh, six parts. Um, all of them had, you know, some names of note. The first one, I believe, is, it's, is MC Light and uh, Steve Gibb, uh, who's the son of Barry Gibb of the Bee Gees. Mm. Our detective is played by Jordi Villasuso, who's mm. an Emmy Award nominated or Emmy Award winning actor. Um, and then the second one that you can find uh, the, the podcast on on SoundCloud uh, is Rami Jaffe of the Foo Fighters and Jimmy Jean Louis of Claws, uh, Joy, Heroes, Heroes Reborn. So. You know, I love the story podcast, not just because we've produced them, but, uh, you know, it harkens back to a time when people would just listen to uh, these stories on the radio. So, yeah. Old timey radio. That's right. <laughs> you, you remember, what was that movie? Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? The, the Coen Brothers movie? One of my favorite movies, period. It definitely we ain't one at a time and we's mass communicating. <laughs> yeah. yeah so uh mass communicating we are very very happy that uh, we're getting these podcasts out um the people that we've interviewed and have in the pipeline uh are is a cornucopia of um and and a mosaic of the industry so we're looking forward to our second part with kyle patrick alvarez next week Thank you all for listening. I'm Kevin Sharpley. I'm JL Martinez. And we will hear you on the next one. Dale.